Welcome to Episode 5 in Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation. I'm Father Ron Shibley, founder and director of the Anglican Internet Church and producer of this series. In Episode 5, I begin my verse-by-verse reading and discussion of the first three of the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor in Chapters 2 and 3. Last time, in Episode 4, I reviewed the five literary characteristics of the seven letters. If you'd like to hear that discussion again, please visit the video archive on our YouTube page or listen to a podcast version on our Podbean site. Also, if you have not already viewed Episode 2, which includes my primer on numerology and revelation, I urge you to do so since understanding how John used numerology is critical to understanding this series of programs on revelation. We begin episode 5 with the letter to the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus is the same group to whom St. Paul had earlier written a canonical epistle which we know as Ephesians. It is the same congregation which John led as the equivalent of a modern bishop after he took the Blessed Virgin Mary there for her protection after the resurrection and before his imprisonment on Podmos near the end of the first century. I begin with a reading of chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent." But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. As I explained in episode 4, the seven stars represent the seven churches of Asia Minor. But now in verses 1 and 2, John again invokes the powerful magical number 7 a second time, referring to the seven golden lampstands. The voice says, It is known what is in the minds uh, and hearts of the church. I know your works, your labor, your patience. The power to know one's thoughts is a divine characteristic of the Almighty, to whom John referred by name in Revelation 1.8. When the vision speaks in verse 2 of apostles tested and found to be false apostles and liars, he is likely speaking of the group known as the Gnostics, from the Greek Gnostikos, meaning knowledge. The Gnostics undermine many of the churches in Asia Minor. Their negative influence is what is referred to by St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 7 to 13, and in Acts 20, verse 29. John himself referred to them as deceivers in 2 John 7. 
In verses 3, 4, and 5, the vision offers a combination first of praise, then of accusation, and finally a threat. The vision illustrates more of the idea of divine knowledge in verse 3, speaking words of praise to the Ephesians for enduring adversity, have labored for my name's sake, and not become weary. Since the early centuries of the church, this has been interpreted to mean an abandonment of apostolic teaching. In verse 5, they are warned, unless they repent and do first works, meaning return to the first principles of apostolic doctrine, which they are accused of abandoning in verse 4, the vision will return and remove their lampstand. This suggests a form of church disapproval known in the Eastern tradition as anathema and in the Western tradition as excommunication. In verse 6a, the vision again offers praise, commending the Ephesians for hating the Nicolaitans, which he says he also hates. Eastern church scholars say that the Nicolaitans are most likely the followers of Nicholas the Gentile, who was made a deacon at Antioch, as described in Acts 6, verse 5. Eusebius, in the first history of the church published early in the 4th century, Eusebius agrees, labeling him a heretic and leader of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans believe that one did not have to abandon occult worship in order to remain Christian. They practice what we might call a blend of Christianity, Judaism, and hedonism, plus idol worship. This and other similar doctrines were rejected at the earliest ecumenical councils at Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. For more on the rulings of the seven ecumenical councils, see the entry for ecumenical councils in the AIC publication, Layman's Lexicon, which is now available in a paperback edition at our e-store https colon right slash right slash www.createspace.com right slash 467-9894 and at amazon.com by entering the book title in the search box. In the closing message to the Ephesians, Jesus offers thematic a thematic introduction, He who has ears, let him hear that has a distinctively Old Testament overtone from the Psalms and from Isaiah. He follows that by a promise of reward to those who have overcome. And the reward is the opportunity to eat the fruits of the tree of life in paradise. This is the only use of the term paradise in Revelation, and one of only three uses in the entire New Testament the other two being 2 Corinthians 12.4 and Luke 23.43, the latter spoken by Christ from the cross. Like so much of the content of Revelation, the understanding of paradise and the related term tree of life is based on the Old Testament account of creation in Genesis 2 verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This closing promise is both history and prophecy. 
In the New Testament, the paradise of Genesis is linked to a vision of heaven, or New Jerusalem, to which John refers in Revelation 3.13 and in Revelation 21.1 through 22.5. Some scholars think this paradise of God refers to the term third heaven, or highest heaven, referred to by St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 4, which is his vision of paradise. Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christians still sing hymns referring to God's high heaven or his high heaven. As I noted in episode 14 in our New Testament series, this idea is incorporated into the Gloria in the Gospel of St. Luke in Luke 2.14, glory be to God in the highest, which means his highest and not our highest praise, as is often said. The next set of verses is the letter to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna, now Izmir, Turkey, in the province of Anatolia, was about 50 miles northwest of Ephesus. It was one of the major cities of the region at the end of the first century. It was founded by Greeks, but in the first century it was firmly under Roman control. It called itself the first city of Asia, although it was smaller than its principal rival, Ephesus. The illustration from the public domain shows the relative location of Smyrna to the other six churches to which letters were addressed in Revelation. Note that both Smyrna and Ephesus had an outlet to the Mediterranean. I begin the reading of the text with chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The form of the letter to the church at Smyrna is the same as in the letter to the Ephesians. The message to the angel, the revelation of divine knowledge, an assessment of the state of affairs, a suggested corrective action, and a closing message. In verse 8, the phrase, the first and the last who was dead and came to life, is an allusion to the resurrection, the principal foundation of Christian belief, that Jesus did actually die on the cross and not just appeared to die, an explanation known as docetism, and was truly raised to life again. The voice again reveals the divine power of knowing the thoughts of men, for in 9a, he says he knows their works and tribulation. The voice continues to de demonstrate the divine in the accusation concerning poverty, but you are rich. 
Their poverty refers to their spiritual condition, whereas the reference, but you are rich, refers to their earthly prosperity. The reference in verse 9b to those who say they are Jews and are not is similar to what St. Paul wrote in Romans 2 verses 28 and 29 referring to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. Jesus calls the group a synagogue of Satan for their persecution of Christians. This means they have perverted Judaism by seeking favor from men rather than from God. Judah means the Lord be praised. The prophecy of the coming of ten days of tribulation at Smyrna was fulfilled a few years later when St. Polycarp, bishop of Smyrna, was put to death by fire. Polycarp was indeed faithful until death because he refused to repudiate his faith in Jesus Christ, making him the first, one of the first martyrs of the new century. The promise of a crown of life in verse 10b refers to the eternal life in God's kingdom that is offered to all who overcome. The closing promise, which follows the he who has ears let him hear statement, is to those who overcome that they will not be hurt by the second death. Not being hurt by the second death is one of John's code phrases for avoidance of the final judgment in the lake of fire, which is the focus of Revelation 20, verse 6, 14, and 15, and Revelation 21, verse 8. The third letter is addressed to the church at Pergamos, which is sometimes translated as Pergamon, sometimes as Pergamum. Pergamos is now Bergama, Turkey. It lies ten miles inland from the Mediterranean. It was a center of culture and industry, a place of quite a number of firsts, where the first parchment was made. Indeed, the word parchment comes from the Middle English for the feminine form of Pergamos being Pergamene. It was the site of the first temple to a living Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, which was built around 29 AD. A Pergamon's temple to the Greek god Zeus, only a pile of stones remains. Called Satan's throne in Revelation 2 verse 13a, it is shown in a model and detail in the slides which accompany the text. The temple was dismantled and taken to the Pergamon Museum in Berlin in 1871 A.D., where it was reassembled and remains on view to the public. The text of the letter is found in Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny me my faith even in the days when, in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to 
put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written which no one knows except him who receives it. As I noted in episode 4, the form of the letters is the same in all seven letters, including this one to the church at Pergamos, the address to the angels, the greeting demonstrating divine power to know the thoughts and minds of men, the summary of the state of affairs, in this case including an accusation as well as praise, a statement of what must be done, and a closing greeting using the phrase, he who has ears, let him hear. In the greeting of the letter to Pergamos, the voice reminds readers that he holds, quote, the sharp two-edged sword. The two-edged sword is a metaphor for judgment, but here the threat of it is enhanced by the reminder that the sword is sharp. The phrase is used again with a variation in the list of things which must be done in verse 16. The assessment of the state of affairs at Pergamos in verse 13 includes an implied threat, I know your works and where you dwell, in verse 13a. In modern fiction, the same phrase might be, I know where you live. The reference to Satan's throne is to the temple of Zeus at Pergamos, which was moved to Berlin in 1871. A model of the hypothetical view of the complete original temple is on view at the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. The assessment in verse 13b includes praise for not abandoning Christianity even during the period of threats during the reign of Emperor Domitian, who had imprisoned John on Patmos, and under whose authority Bishop Antipas, according to Christian tradition consecrated by John himself, was boiled alive in a copper vessel resembling a bull. For the association of bull's horns with satanic worship, see the bull's skull in the slide with the text of the letter to Pergamos. Antipas' offense was confessing aloud his faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. The accusation, beginning in verse 14, includes a list of offenses, the first against those who, like Balaam and Balak, the Moabite god and his followers discussed in Numbers 22-24, to offered live sacrifices to idols, ate food offered to idols, and committed sexual immorality. St. Peter refers to other similar heresies in 2 Peter 2.15. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. St. Jude also referred to them in Jude 11. 
The accusation continues in 2.14 against those who practice the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And earlier in this episode, I discussed the Nicolaitans in slides 11.11 and 111a. The corrective action demanded is repentance on pain of the coming of judgment with the, quote, sword of my mouth in verse 16, a reference to specific judgment, but also an allusion to the truth of the Gospels, which are indeed the word of my mouth. In the closing verses, preceded by the he who has ears let him hear phrase, there is a twofold promise in return for repentance for those who overcome. And as you will certainly have noticed, the term overcome is used frequently in the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. They are promised hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. Hidden manna is a reference to the mysterious substance found on the hoarfrost in Exodus 16, verses 14 to 16, and in which Moses said, This is the bread of life which the Lord hath given you to eat. It is an allusion to the promise of salvation that comes with receipt of the elements. The second promise, the white stone on which a new name will be written that can only be read by a Christian, is thought to be John's attempt to co-opt the pagans who gave their followers amulets with mysterious words and formula. And here he uses it the white stone and the name as an allusion to the benefits of the sacrament of baptism through which new believers are brought into the faith. Next time in episode 6, I will discuss the content of the letters in at the end of chapter 2 and, and in chapter 3, taking in three letters, the letters to Thyatira, Sardis, and, if time permits, Philadelphia. Thank you for joining me for Episode 5 of Revelation and Idealist Interpretation. You can help us keep this kind of programming available on the Internet in several ways. You can make a contribution by sending a check payable to the Anglican Internet Church at our business office address, 7162 Wind Lane, Mechanicsville, Virginia, 23111. Or you can purchase any of our books, currently eight, which are now offered in paperback editions from the bookstore page at our main website, www.anglicaninternetchurch.net, or the bookstore page at our Podbean site, www.stjohnc.podbean.com. Books can also be purchased from Amazon.com. On the Amazon site, Either enter my name in the search box or a book title. You can further indicate your support by clicking the like and follow buttons on the Podbean site, which is also the host for our extensive collection of over 400 MP3 podcasts on various topics. You can also like and follow us on our rebranded Facebook page, the full Facebook address is on the screen, but you can also use the direct link to our Facebook page, which I have posted on the home page at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net.
Using the link, once you've reached the Facebook page, you can bookmark it for easy return. Both contributors and book purchasers can request to become distance members. Distance members receive our weekly update, which goes out on Friday afternoon and contains the latest news plus links to videos, podcasts, and publications. Send your request to me at frron.stjohnanglican at earthlink.net. If you'd like to speak with me personally, please call on my cell phone, 804-306-1190. Best times are 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.